Welcome to another Access Answers episode. I'm your host, Julia Vergara, along with Angela O'Pry, and we have Frederick Hall here with us today. Frederick is a senior consultant with Access Sciences for just about eight years, I believe. In addition to that, he's a handyman, a storyteller, and a creature of habit. So we have lots to talk about today, and I'm sure we'll get some great stories. I think you just went on vacation not that long ago. Yeah, we had a uh, road trip. I love road trips, so we went out west. Um, we ended up sort of on Route 60, 66 a little bit, and uh, but not the entire time. But we went out to New Mexico a little bit into Arizona and then back. And so considering we had, oh, about seven days, it was uh, we were fitting in about, uh, oh boy, 200 to 300 miles a day. Wow. And I, how many flat tires? <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs> Boy, we were, we were out in the middle of nowhere uh, in the desert uh, in uh, New Mexico and Arizona. And I mean, when I say in the middle of nowhere, it was like two hours before you'd see another town. And That's uh, well, it was fine. And I remember thinking, well, as long as we don't get a flat tire or something, we're okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, some, somehow or another, by some miracle, we were driving through the center of El Paso uh, and uh, all of a sudden got the warning light that the tire was deflating fast and really fast. And I remember thinking, well, if we had to get a flat tire, I wasn't thrilled about it, but if we had to get one, this was the place. Because if it had happened two days earlier or three days earlier when we were out driving through kind of south uh, western New Mexico it would have been a really bad situation really bad situation so, <laughs> and uh, come to find out our car does not have a spare it has this uh, silly what? yes yes that was the worst of it we found that out uh, so the car is two years old it's an Acura don't mean that's you know bad mouth Acura but they decided not to put spares in their cars they just give you this little electronic pump and a uh, like a fix a flat kit and it did not work and uh, we would have been in trouble for sure. Uh, well, I actually yeah. bought a new car recently and I found out while I was going around and looking that I don't think it's required anymore to put the spare tire in the back. Apparently not. It's news to me, but I, I think you're right. I think, and I think I personally, I totally disagree with it because if, you know, if you have serious damage to the tire and that can happen easily, if yeah. it's not a very small puncture, very small, like a nail or smaller it's not going to work, and um, and and the, it'll leave you stranded every time. Whereas a spare, anything can happen. You could crack the wheel on a curb and still have a way of getting to safety. So anyway, even those little uh, what do they call them? Those temporary spares is better than mm -hmm. no spare. But anyway, that was a that was an interesting situation. It was the only mishap really. The rest of the trip was great. Um, I'm good for about four to six hours of driving a day. And when it starts getting anything beyond six, I, I get pretty worn out. So we plan it out mm -hmm. so that we try and keep it between four and six hours a day, but we keep moving, uh, maybe stay two nights in one place, but generally one night in each place. It's, uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Did you hit some good restaurants while y'all were out? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's <laughs> not, not good for the waistline for sure, but uh, <laughs> And when you say good restaurants, I would use that term loosely. And we, we actually hit some very, one or two very nice restaurants in the Santa Fe area. 
but also some kind of um, dives that ended up being very good too in some of the smaller towns and then also some dives that weren't so great it was trucker food you know and uh, and yeah i don't know you you sit there and you eat that horrible food sometimes on the road and then you get right back in the car and you sit there for another four hours and so it's very little activity luckily the times we stopped like in santa fe we were doing a lot of walking and then we were camping part of the time and there was plenty of walking but when you realize how long you're just sitting there in the car you understand how some of those truckers can get a pretty big uh, belly So I have to ask this, did the creature of habit go to a new place or were the places that y'all went (laughs) places that you were familiar with? Now, so that's a great question because the answer is yes and no. We went to a couple of places that I went to years ago, probably mid 80s, uh, late 80s, that I recalled being really amazing and, and out in the middle of nowhere. I tend to really like to get away from the crowds and off the beaten path. I don't like to do what everyone else does. I want to go to the, the unusual places. And we went to a place called El Moro, which is a, also called Inscription Rock. And it was everything I remembered it was, but it had been, uh, wow, I don't even want to think about how long it had been, 35 years or more <laughs> since I'd been there. It seems like it was yesterday to me. And you know, nothing had changed. It's a place where for centuries people have stopped on the way into the west of the United States, including their conquistadors back in the Spanish, their Spanish inscriptions from the 1600s uh, all the way through the 1800s. I think Theodore Roosevelt was there and, and inscribed his name on it. So it's basically just a huge mesa or mountainside that is inscribed with thousands of signatures and really nicely done. I mean, uh, they, some of them look like they were stonemasons that put their names in there. And some of them are very rough, you know, but it's, it's amazing. And then also we went to uh, new places too. I mean, there, believe it or not, Angela, there were some, there were some <laughs> routes that I said, you know, I've never done this road. Let's do this road. Let's see what's down this okay. road, you know? And so uh, I was mixing it up. I mean, I am a creature of habit, no <laughs> doubt, but believe it or not, I do like to mix it up sometimes. And, um, I think it really depends on on what the thing is, especially food and meals. I like to go with what I know. I like to, you know, if I know I'm going to enjoy it, I'll, let's do it again. I'll, I'd love to try it. But something like a road trip, I love to go down the road I've never seen before. So I guess in that aspect, I may, maybe I'm not so much of a creature of habit. I am also very adventurous in, in some ways, but not so much with food, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> So we should probably take a step back and even start from the beginning where the creature of habit came from. And of course, we use that term or that expression nicely. Mm-hmm. Lovingly. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. So tell us a little bit about where that came from and how that got started. A year ago, you gave a webinar presentation about that. And so it's just kind of stuck. And, you know, I think I told Julia that we need to create a Gossip Girl style blog. It's like XOXO Creature of Habit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I want to create a Creature of Habit Twitter account. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Yeah, it's uh, funny because I remember, Angela, when we talked about that webinar, when you, when you told me I'd be doing it and we, I, I started thinking about it and thinking about the irony of the fact that I'm in change management and that I am so averse to change, especially, I mean, there's some things that I do. I like routine. I like predictability in a lot of areas. And it, it's just kind of ironic that I ended up in the field of change management. But at the same time, I think it also 
it helps me because I understand, you know, the challenges, what it takes to get someone to want to change. And, and I'm also a huge fan of old horror movies, any kind of old horror movies, even the bad ones. I like the good ones. I like the bad ones, uh, you know, all the way back to the 50s and got me to thinking about Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, uh, and then whenever I had heard the term Creature of Habit, and I've been told that's me, it always made me think of those old movies. And so I thought it'd be fun to do, I think the podcast was titled, uh, I'm sorry, the webinar was titled Change Management versus the Creature of Habit. That's what it was. And, and it's very relevant to what we do, you know, in terms of uh, helping people in almost every case where I've been working on any kind of a project where there was change involved, I guarantee you I've run into people like me. They like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, that whole mantra. I totally understand that. And there's ways of working with that. There's ways of working with people like that. And I think it's an empathy, a piece, you know, empathy that works. So that's where that came from. So I do not mind being called a creature of heaven. (laughs) And what's so fascinating to me is that whenever we planned that presentation, that was way before COVID and way before the pandemic was even a thought. I remember sitting at Yaya Mary's, which is now closed, having hummus, chatting about our ideas for the presentation. You know, just like nothing had ever, we had no idea what was coming, not wearing masks and not being concerned about being out at a restaurant. So I think the relevancy of that is just so on target right now and everything that we've been through over the past year. And you know, Julie and I have talked about the pandemic and everyone is ready to move past the pandemic. So I don't want to belabor that, but I think the change change management component that we've all been through of our lives is worth addressing in this podcast and this episode. So from someone who maybe is the creature of habit for certain things, certain situations, mm-hmm. uh-huh. what was your journey like? I mean, we've had nothing but change, work from home starting out and then not knowing how long that was going to take. Now people are kind of doing a hybrid situation. I don't know. What's your, what's your Mm. take? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's funny. Maybe it's the optimist in me or just looking at the glass half full. Uh, When I heard, uh, you know, when I, I'm sure everyone thought about this, when it first came out in March or whenever of last year, that we may be confined to the house and that we may not be able to travel and go and do things. There was a part of me that was like, oh, wow, this is not good. And and yes, that is a change. But at the same time, I get to stay in my same house all the time and I don't have to go anywhere, right? <laughs> I don't have to take any risks. I don't have to get on the road and drive. I, don't, I might get into an accident, you know, all of these things. So it's, 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 it fed into almost the creature of habit in a funny sort of way. That and, and I developed these routines around the house. You know, I have um, kind of, uh, I was able to find a different way of doing things. You know, uh, every morning, you know, I go down and get my breakfast, get my coffee at about 7.30. I could be ready for my meetings at 8. And I sit in the same room wearing the same headset, doing the same thing every day. So you can find a bright side to it, right? And I'm also uh, an introvert. And uh, people laugh when I say that, but I truly am an introvert. Uh, and so that helps too, you know, I, I, there's something, and I'm sure every introvert out there in the audience could, could relate to that, that when you're told that you're going to be, uh, confined to your house, it's kind of a, a funny sort of relief too. But that said, uh, you know, about three months into it, I started noticing, even at the introvert that I am, I started missing human contact. And I think, I think we all did that. 
And the project I was on, luckily, we had a great team together and they were all over the world. And so I was able to speak with these people. The project actually took place with, I want to say, clients of people that I was speaking with every day. They might have been in Amsterdam. They might have been in Singapore. They might have been in Spain. They may have been uh, in London. I mean, all over the place. And my teammates were also all over the place. But it felt like uh, almost a support group. It was a really great place to be at that particular moment in time. And I think that project was perfect, you know, for, for a COVID thing to come along. And we start. it was odd. We started the project and I started on the project in January and six weeks or eight weeks into it, we started hearing about this, you know, COVID situation. And by March 15th, we were in our houses and I was able to speak with all of these people about, well, how, how are things on your end? You know, what's it like? Are restaurants closed? Are you people outside? And, and I got to hear a couple of things. One is that things were being handled very differently because in Italy, if you'll recall, they were the first to get the, the, the bad press about, you know, all the awful things happening in Italy. And then it, of course, yeah. expanded over the whole world. But speaking to people in Spain, you know, they were saying they're not even letting people out on the street at all. And I'm like, that's kind of odd. I mean, literally, you couldn't go jogging. And and I remember wow. thinking, well, we're in America, land of the freedom. So they're not going to restrict you from walking outside. And to me, that was the the one thing you could do that you could actually get outside and, and you'd see people on the street speaking across the street. You know, the distancing was more like 20 feet at that point. And you, but you wanted to talk to people. And um, anyway, speaking with people all around the world, it made me realize that we were all kind of in the same boat, but at the same time, not. And uh, I don't know, it, it was certainly interesting, but I found a bright side to uh, even being a creature of habit. I found a bright side to it and adapted to the change. I mean, I think even someone like me that loves to do the same thing all the time and loves routine, it's it's not all black and white. You know, I, I make mm -hmm. it sound that way sometimes, but there are places that I do like uh, adventure and change and, and to see to do different things. Um, but most people would not see that side of me unless you hang out with me for a long time. So Yeah, I think the initial excitement of getting to stay home <laughs> wore off <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. And I've seen a lot too about the price of lumber and the mm -hmm. supply of lumber is extremely difficult. I think everyone was sitting at home. What can I do to just expel this anxious energy and provide a better surrounding or redo mm -hmm. the bathroom, repaint the walls, yeah. build a deck, uh, had... install a pool. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a, uh, I called it my COVID project and it began before COVID. And I recall, uh, you know, I was talking about that team I was working with. So I had this project, we were, we were actually having a pool installed and we paused it, of course, in February or end of February. I remember we were, they were about to start digging and then we started hearing about COVID and all the, the whole situation coming. And I started you know, thinking about all these worst case scenarios. What if they get the hole dug and then all the whole world comes to an end or, you know, we, we stop working and no more paychecks or <laughs> no one's, yeah, I didn't know. I mean, it was so un, yeah. un the unknown was intense. I mean, we had no idea was the economy going to keep going or, you know, what was going to happen. And so we paused it. And of course the pool guy was not happy about that, but he said everyone was doing it, you know, because we just didn't know what was going to happen. And, uh, I didn't want a big hole in the backyard and then find out we're in this post-apocalyptic kind of world with a big <laughs> hole in our backyard. And so anyway, we went ahead with it after about uh, eight weeks, uh, I'd say in April. And 
I had a pretty big task ahead of me because I had decided to do a deck on the entire backyard. Our backyard was never that spectacular. We live in an old house in an old part of Houston. And the backyard was just kind of, you know, mediocre at best. It was nothing to look at. It was nothing, you know, grass wouldn't really grow there, mosquitoes. It was just not much to be able to hang out in. It wasn't fun. And um, so we decided to do a deck above ground, about 18 inches above ground. And I used synthetic decking. I forget how the square footage, but it was a lot. I mean, it covered the entire backyard. Uh, I want to say it was... Um, 1200 square feet, something like that. And so I have these two guys I work with that I bring in and we call them the Rodriguez brothers because they are brothers and um, they work with me. They're framers. And uh, I started work with, working with them about six years ago when I did this home restoration uh, on our house. We did a major restoration, stripped down the walls. I call it skeletized. We literally had stripped it down to the studs. You could see through the walls in some areas. And we repiped, rewired, put insulation in. The house was built in 1922, so it didn't have insulation. And these guys helped me. I say help me. I couldn't have done it without them. I, I was going to try and do most of that myself. And they laughed when I told them I thought I'd get it done in three to six months. They said, okay, whatever you say. And, <laughs> and they only speak Spanish. So we... Um, we were speaking Spanish the whole time, and uh, they, they, it's funny, they had this, uh, I could tell they had this great respect for me as the boss, you know, I was the one paying them, but they also, there were some things they would kind of smirk at, you know, I would say, well, we're going to do this, and they would kind of say, no, you don't really want to do that. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I started realizing these guys are super smart. They're like engineers that just didn't go to school, but the, as framers, they were incredible. So uh, I digress a little bit there. But so the long story short is I called them here for three years later and I said, hey, you guys want to help me uh, with a, another project, a framing project with the deck. And so they came in and helped me put up a perimeter beam and uh, then they got called into another project. And so uh, we, we did social distancing. We kind of stayed away from each other, but they're always fun to work with. And I thought they were going to help me with the whole thing. Well, once we got the perimeter beam up, they called me and said, so we got a, a, a good framing job. And I know that they're going to go and take, you know, the solid job where they're going to be working for a while. And they'd been with me for about two weeks and they needed the money. And uh, they needed a long-term gig, so they were going to be able to frame up a bunch of townhouses. And I said, you guys go. I said, I think I got this now. And so I did the rest of the joists. But you talk about lumber. Uh, it started getting to the point where I didn't even know if I was going to be able to get the lumber for it. I'd go to mm -hmm. the supply store, and, and uh, the, the shelves would be empty. And I started thinking, oh, wow. And so I bought what I could. And I ultimately got it done. Uh, it was quite a task. It was during the summer. So uh, working outside during the summer like that is, in Houston, it's, it's not a good idea. It's a better uh, fall project. But by July and August, I was out there working on it. But it came together. It's amazing. It's it finally, I finally finished it, I want to say officially, probably in uh, November or October. But it gave me something to do. And mm -hmm. uh, my team that I was working with on my uh, client project for actually my day job, I was showing them videos and go, taking them out to show them the deck. You know, say, this is what I did this weekend, you know. So every Monday they'd want to know how far did you get? What did you get done? And I'd take them out and show them the progress. And uh, it was really pretty amazing. We did um, uh, this is now a slightly different topic. We did a, um, 
a virtual happy hour, the first one I had ever done, I think it was in April. And so we were all talking about how strange it was to not be able to get together with your friends. And, and they said, let's do a virtual happy hour. And Angela, you know this about me. I don't like being on camera very much. And I was like, can we just do audio? And they said, no, it's not that much fun. And we got to do the camera. And I said, okay, we'll do the camera. And I, I thought I was going to dread it. I thought I was not going to have fun. We ended up being on that call for two and a half hours and we had planned it for 30 minutes or an hour. And we were on the call for two and a half hours, probably had one too many drinks and just had a blast. (laughs) But there were, I think, four of us. And uh, we, you know, one person was in London, one was in Spain, and the other was also probably in England somewhere, but not in London. And uh, we just sat and just talked, you know. And we had our, I, I had a gin and tonic. I think my, my project manager also had one. And I think the other girl had wine and somebody else had, I don't know what. But anyway, we actually did that. And it was a, it was a lot of fun. And I was kind of surprised. Again, cre- I am a creature of habit. But in that case, I did stretch a little bit because they made me, <laughs> they made me turn on the camera. They made me do a social event. And I enjoyed it. So, yep, sometimes I try new stuff and I have fun. And here you are today with your camera on. Yes, I do have my camera on. I hope this is going to be shown, but (laughs) I do have my camera on, yes. Access Answers is owned and operated by Access Sciences. We are a consulting and business process outsourcing firm specializing in information governance, technology enablement, and business strategy. Since 1985, our dynamic team of experts have been committed to meeting each of our clients' unique information needs. If you're interested in partnering with Access Sciences, send us an email at info at accesssciences.com. So, Frederick, another thing, another accomplishment that you had this year besides building a deck um, is your ProSci certification. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? The ProSci certification is something I had had on my to-do list for a while, and it worked out pretty well because um, it was it was just a good time to get it done. It involved, um, uh, again, well, I guess it was online. It was online classes. It was interesting. During the class, we had somebody in the uh, ProSci certification uh, sessions that had COVID, that actually had it. So that was interesting to see that she was able to do that. You could tell she did not feel good, <laughs> but uh, she was able to pull it off. She passed the test and all of that. I want to say it was a five-day program. I don't remember precisely. It was a five-day program, I think. And then at the end, you know, there's an exam that takes most of the final day. And um, it's something I had had uh, on my list of things to do for a long time, and it just worked out really well that we were able to do that. The people I had known that had done ProSize certification before, which is a change management um, certification, by the way, had done it in a live environment. And the people doing our uh, training, ProSci people, were, I think, had done a few virtual sessions, but this was one of the first they had done. And so it was kind of a challenge for them, too to get used to doing this uh, virtually. And it, and it was tricky because they, I, you could tell that when they had done these live training sessions that they would do breakout rooms, literally go into separate rooms or work together as small teams. And they had to learn how to use breakout rooms um, on, uh, I think we were on Zoom, I wanna say. I don't remember which, which uh, I think it was Zoom. But we were able to do the breakout rooms and do everything. Uh, they had basically adapted 
course, they were change management people and they had adapted really well to the changes they were challenged with. But anyway, I was glad to get it done. It was a good time for it. And it is, uh, if, if anyone's familiar with ProSci, they know that that uh, ADCAR is kind of their methodology, a five-step program for change with awareness, desire, knowledge, ability, and then reinforcement. So you go through those stages for successful change. Um, and But you have to be sure you focus on each stage carefully. You can't like say, well, this part's the easy part. Let's just skip over it. You have, each one is important, including the very last one, which is reinforcement, because it's so easy to change successfully. And then six months later, you find everyone has fallen back into their old patterns. People like me, you fall back into your <laughs> old habit, you know? And so the reinforcement piece is so big. And I had known a lot about it. Uh, ProSci and ADCAR, it's something that you just are exposed to a lot. It was good to actually hear the ProSci people talk about it and actually put the pieces together from their point of view and understand exactly what it meant uh, and how it worked. I was glad to get that done. Do you see any parallels for the ADCAR model in going through a major home renovation or a major project? You know, the awareness stage when you might say to your wife, okay, we're going to install a pool in the backyard and build a deck. Is there anything that you have to do to kind of go through the ADCAR process for a big project like that? Well, I think that anytime you go through a change like that, you subconsciously, you, you have to go through it. So that's why I say each step is so important not to kind of skip over it. So, you know, the awareness that our backyard wasn't that great, and the awareness that we <laughs> needed to do something different, and the awareness that there were mosquitoes, and the awareness that the, the vegetation back there was out of control, and, and all of those kinds of things. And then, of course, we had the desire to use the backyard. You know, there, there's always mm -hmm. a, a parallel that can be drawn in any change whether it's with your, your home, your family, personal life, work life. Yeah, you can draw that parallel for everything. And, you know, I believe that change management probably began the concept of change management. And I don't know the whole history of it, but my, my thought behind it is it probably began in the, the 60s or 70s as technology was taking off. And I think it really hit when software development came along. And so the concept of change management really was at a huge level. It's like, how are you going to change an entire corporation, a large, you know, thousands of people doing the same thing, mm -hmm. or even a country, you know, to change their culture. Um, but it applies to small things, too. Uh, it applies to smaller projects in a different way, maybe. But uh, I think the original concept of change management was changing large populations of people. But it does apply to anything. Even, even a family, you know, if, if you usually do something a certain way, uh, load the dishwasher a certain way, and you realize it's not working, well, then you have an awareness, and then you have to have the desire, and your other family members have to be willing to do it. They have to have the desire for the dishes to be whatever, cleaner or more efficient or something. And then there's the knowledge and the ability and then the reinforcement, you know, to keep it going. So when you think about any change, ADCAR applies to all of them, just in a, in a subtle, a slightly different way. But if you miss any piece of it, you know, that change can fail. If you've got one person in the family that doesn't have the desire to load the dishwasher differently or something, then it's not going to happen. everyone have that one person in the family? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So somehow or another, you have to sell that to them. 
you know, there's the carrot and the stick idea, you know, and hopefully you can do it with carrots. Um, and every now and then you have to say, look, if you don't do it this way, you're going to be the one eating off the dirty dishes, you know, we're going to make you eat off the, <laughs> the ones that don't get clean or whatever. And, um, Put your plates forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, yeah, I think, I think ADCAR applies to virtually all changes. So you just kind of touched on something, and I know Julia's written blogs about this, about engaging your stakeholders and gaining that buy-in. So that was probably fairly easy with doing a backyard because your wife's an avid gardener. So she probably was very <laughs> excited about the opportunity to plant some new vegetation and design the landscaping yep. there. But what about in the business world and engaging the stakeholders and bringing them into that process? Yeah, I, th I think the first thing you would notice is that there's going to be a lot of different personalities, a lot of different types of people that you're dealing with. You're going to have the optimists, you're going to have the the people, the enthusiasts, the ones that are excited about it, and then you're going to have the blockers and you're going to have the people that don't want to do it. And so, you know, in terms of stakeholder engagement, um, it's got to be done and you've got to tackle it. And, you know, you jump in head first and start working with it. And the temptation, and I talked about this in my webinar, the temptation is to, you know, to hang out with the enthusiasts, to, to hang out with the optimist, you know, and to do <laughs> the all the champions. And, and yeah, you, you know, you figure if you just hang with them, everything's going to be okay. Well, it's not going to be okay. You know, you really ought to shift your focus to the, the tough ones the the blockers um for a few reasons one because they're always they're gonna be there you can't just ignore them you can't just imagine that they're not there the, that their opinion doesn't matter or that their attitude doesn't matter you need to get them on board too and uh if you can change their mind uh it has a huge influence when other people see it happen they can be very influential you know they're known as the blockers they're known you know among their group as people that don't want to do the the new things and if you can sell them on it then you're you're miles ahead in terms of getting other people on board but and also i mean stakeholder engagement is is tricky because as well you know we've talked about the whole virtual thing um we've had mm -hmm. to do some data gathering and some stakeholder engagement projects in the last year during covid and doing it virtually is a challenge. I mean, there, there's something mm -hmm. to be said for that face-to-face -face contact, that human contact that I was talking about earlier, that when you're not in the room with the person, yeah, maybe they're on camera, maybe you can see the body language, but there's a certain thing, and I can't even put my finger on it, that you can't, it's not tangible, you cannot feel it. Um, but when you're in the room with the person, uh, it's, it's different. So uh, that's been challenging. Uh, we've had to come up with new tools and new ways of dealing with that too. But uh, it's it's worked. I mean, it's it's been amazing that the entire year has shifted our way of working so much, and some of it will stick with us for a long, long time. And some of it, of course, you know, things will get back to normal. That's well, normal. Who knows what that is anymore? But <laughs> at some point, you know, we'll get back to working, and I guess with more familiar with what we were more familiar with back then. But some of these habits and these the ways that we're doing things, they're going to be with us for a long, long time now. Almost a culture shift. I believe. Yeah, we were commenting this morning that this is our 11th episode and also the very first one that we're recording in the office. Oh, wow. Interesting. Fascinating to think about. We were chatting, kind of going back and forth just ahead of this recording about, are you 
always a blocker? Once a blocker, always a blocker? Or can you switch roles? Can you go from champion on one project to a blocker on another? What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, I mean, I can think of situations you, you could uh, try and talk me into where I'd be like, no way. There's no way I'm doing that. But I can also think of other situations where I'd be totally on board. It really, it really depends on what you're trying to convince the person to do. Um, yes, there are probably, I do know <laughs> of some people, everyone probably knows some people that are always <laughs> pessimists, always pessimists. I told Angela, that's my younger sister. She's <laughs> always a blocker, no matter the situation. No matter what, yes, it can happen, no, no doubt. I mean, you know, your younger sister may love ice cream, but she's the one that when you say, hey, let's go down to the store and get ice cream, she'll come up with some reason why it's not a good idea. Exactly. And you're like, my, I thought you liked ice cream. Well, but yeah, but today <laughs> something's different. They have to disagree all the time. Some people do that. Yeah, it's odd. Or, yeah. you know, you, you get into those situations and boy, I, I've been there in this place before. I used to be considered when I was much younger, kind of indecisive. And uh, of course, my friends hated that, you know, and, and they'd say, look, OK, you're going to have to decide, like, where are we going to dinner tonight? You know? And I say, I don't know, wherever you want to go. No, you have to decide. And I say, okay, so we're going to have uh, Mexican food tonight. And, and someone will speak up and say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. Let's do something else. So so then this poor guy, me, is is forced to make a decision, but then it's vetoed, you know, immediately. So um, mm-hmm. I've, I've also run into that before where someone goes out on a limb to, to make the decision and then they get totally vetoed right there. So... Like I said, the personality types are just all over the place. And when you're dealing with uh, clients and, and groups and, and stakeholder engagement, you're always going to run into those different personalities. And I guess I guess there are uh, 100% all the time blockers out there, which is kind of strange. But uh, I, I think that generally, if someone is on board with an idea, then they're on board with it. And if they're not, then they're not. And uh, they just make it up on the fly. You know, if you tell them we're going to do this differently tomorrow, <laughs> they decide yes or no right there. And some, something in their mind, I think flips like, yeah, that's a good idea or no, that's not a good idea. And if they say, no, it's not a good idea, you're going to have a, a bit of a sales job ahead of you to try and change their mind. So I'm thinking of an internal project, the switch from Skype to Teams. What role did y'all play in that? Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because uh, we were, the project I was talking about for the entire year of COVID, we were using uh, Skype back then. The company we were working with, that's just what they happened to use. We had Teams and uh, I got really used to Skype. And then uh, oddly, when we did our virtual happy hours and stuff that was not work related, we didn't want to do it on the work system. So we ended up using Zoom. Uh, which at first was a bit of a challenge for me. I'd never done it before, and but I liked it. The video was really clear, and some aspects of it were really great. And the Skype situation was, we weren't using video, and so it didn't matter. We just had the audio. I recall with Teams, when I came off that project, I think I was told Access Sciences was going to Teams. And I remember thinking, oh, and of course, the blocker in me came out. <laughs> 
like, but now I'm so used to Skype and why aren't we going to do Zoom? Zoom was so clear. And why do I have to try this whole, this Teams thing? I don't even like Teams. And I, the only thing, experience I'd had with, with Teams was um, that I didn't like it. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 once or twice I had gotten in there and I had some little issue or something and it was a little issue, but I'm sure I made a big deal out of it and just decided I didn't like it. So that was a challenge for me, for our company to shift from one to the other. But I, uh, I like it now. I love it now. And I mean, I hardly even remember what Skype was like. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, once you start using something uh, and, and, and get used to it, it's fine. But so now if you told me we were going back to Skype, I'd probably be a blocker about that. So, Angela, what about you? What was your role in the transition? Well, I think I gave myself away in the very first podcast episode <laughs> whenever I said I created my own teams three years ago. Oh, wow. So definitely on the champion team, for sure. <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> yes. Well, I think yes. uh, it was kind of sneaky, but I think somehow the way they got me on board was to have me help with testing. And uh, oh. so I got to, we got on all, I think, three different platforms. We checked them out. We kind of talked about what was good and what was bad. Of course, I wanted to be negative about teams. And, and it wasn't <laughs> so bad once I got into there. You know, I think, I forget what we tested. I think we tested Skype, Zoom, and Teams. And the idea was going to be, let's compare and let's see what's good and what's bad. And we tried to be subjective. I mean, objective. I was going to be, of course, very subjective. <laughs> and, you know, I, I found it hard to resist teams. It, it, it just ended up working out better than I expected. And that was probably some sneaky way of getting me on board because I recall thinking, why do we have to, why do we have to change? You know, Skype is great. Skype's always been great. It's been great for years. Why do we have to change? But when I saw the video quality differences, I think, was the mm-hmm. big the big thing for me uh, and the collaboration functionality i think zoom is a great video conferencing tool mm-hmm. and of course it's not really like a comparison podcast of zoom versus teams <laughs> maybe we could do a blog about that or something but you know just being able to really collaborate you know we shared documents back and forth we're editing word documents six people in there editing a blog at one time so you know you you don't really get that with the Zoom platform. That's true. Absolutely, yeah. Zoom is really not. Zoom is not quite as good for business. There's no doubt about that. It's better for personal use. Um, right now, I don't know. They they may be changing things, but Teams has more, just more features for business. No doubt about yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So before we wrap up, Frederick, I have one last question for you. Are you ready? Uh oh. I'm worried. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that look in your eyes. So So I need to know what's up with this rare coin that you were rummaging in your attic for. Oh, wow. (laughs) Boy, word gets around, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think I drive my wife crazy with the attic thing because I've I've been getting up there working. And so there's a little bit more of a story to, to that whole thing. This house was built in 1922, but my uh, my mom bought this house in about 1974, and so it's kind of a family home, and it's got a ton of history, a lot of history over the years. Uh, it was a rental house though for a long time, and then when she passed away, I inherited it. It just came in and, and did this renovation about six years ago. So the attic is an interesting place because it has things from many, many, many years ago. Things are in there from when I was a kid, 
things are in there from my kids when they were kids. And uh, then there are things that are even older than that up there. So uh, the, the coin story, the interesting thing there is uh, when I was probably 12, I started collecting coins and kind of got in and out of it, you know, over the years. Uh, but uh, for some reason or another, I recently kind of got back into generating a little bit of interest in it. And I started wondering what happened to, I had one particular prize coin that I had out, had saved for years. And I wondered whatever happened to that. And uh, I knew where it was for the longest time. And then I put it somewhere really safe. And it's so safe, I can't even oh, find it. Oh, that's the worst I, I don't know where it is. I don't know if it it should have been in a drawer. It should have been in a box. It should have, I kind of have this vague memory of about six years ago, putting it away. And that's the last time I saw it. And I do really, I've told my kids before, boy, you know, after I'm gone, you need to look through everything because I do some really strange things and I hide stuff in the weirdest places. And, um, in books, oh, for instance, no. you know, I'll put things oh between God, the pages of the books. So God no. knows what I've done with this thing. Oh I found, God. but in the process over the past week of looking for this thing, I've found every other coin related thing I've had since I was probably 12 years old. I've opened up boxes that have been sealed since 1976 and uh, I found everything but that. And I just don't know <laughs> what I did with it. And I actually found an old, old book, a very old book. And I thought, I wonder if I put it in this book and I flipped it up. Sure enough, two coins fell out and I had hidden them in the book, but they weren't the one I'm looking for. The one I'm looking for is just stellar. It's amazing. And I hope I find it, but God knows where I've hidden it. I'm really good at hiding stuff and I've probably hidden it from myself. So can I just say as someone who's gone through the process of having to clean out after a parent, uh-huh, uh-huh. you and me both, I've done it too. And mm-hmm. having to go through all that. If I had to turn over every book and open every mm-hmm. box, mm-hmm. I'd still mm-hmm. be here. <laughs> yeah. And a half well, years later. Oh, Frederick. I hope my kids like looking for buried treasure the way I do, because they're going to find it here. And it's incredible that, you know, yeah, stuff hidden in the walls, in the books. God knows. I've never, I don't think I've ever buried anything <laughs> valuable in the backyard, but I'm one of those guys that probably would have buried something, you know, during the Great Depression. I would have buried my little jar of gold coins, you know. But there's going to be stuff everywhere. Just in looking, it's incredible the things I found. I found just an amazing amount of uh, just really cool stuff that I forgot even, that I even owned. From the 70s and 80s, uh, but I did so not. So, did you rehide it for. after you found it? The did stuff, uh, some of it, yes. Some, some of it, I sealed the boxes back <laughs> up and stuck them back in the corner of the attic, and for another two or three or four decades, and uh, they may or may not Boy, ever be great. found. Uh, but yeah, yeah, my my kids are going to be uh, <laughs> cursing my name after I'm gone. I think you know, be searching through the attic and going, "Oh my." God, why did he have to save all this stuff? I'm not a hoarder, but uh, I do have a few boxes of, of things. <laughs> a few boxes. As long as they're warned that things are hidden oh, I've and tucked them. away. Yeah. yeah. And they know my nature, too. You know, they mm-hmm. they know that I do stuff like that. So, yeah, for, for every book, they're going to have to go through and flip through it because God knows. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm probably going on and on here, but if I got in change for a $10 bill that was a... Uh, really unusual one. It was not a silver certificate. It was even earlier than that. I think it was a gold certificate from like uh, early 20th century. 
And I thought it was pretty amazing. And it is in a book somewhere. I do not know which one, but I know that I put it between the pages of a book because I wanted to keep it safe. And I'm sure it's still around, no doubt. I have no idea which book it's in. And God knows what it's worth. I have no idea. But <laughs> it was very cool. And if I find something cool, I'm kind of like a ferret. I think I, I take something <laughs> I like and I put it somewhere thinking I'll find it someday. And if you've ever owned a ferret, and I have, they hide things. And then I think they forget that they even have it. That's and you, hilarious. You, we picked up a sofa. And in the back corner of a house, our ferret had hidden a bunch of stuff that I know he had a new hiding place and he had probably forgotten he had that hiding place. Mm-hmm.